Yeah, I want to tell you a story about uh, one really poignant time in my life where I noticed that I had some cultural blind spots and uh, probably some racism that I that I found in myself. So I'm a linguist, and uh, that's a big part of my identity. And so when I was studying my undergrad at UBC, I was taking a course called uh, Field Methods, focused on a language called Kwakwala, which I was really enjoying because that's uh, also part of uh, where I grew up, up in Port Hardy. Uh, and so then I was identifying strongly with that language as well. And the teacher there um, was had a really good rapport with, and I was learning lots of the language and the culture through that. And at one point in one of uh, my sessions, there was a guy uh, who came in who originally introduced our teacher with the with UBC, the professors at UBC that were running the program, uh, who just sat in on our on our our session. We called them elicitation sessions, which is a super colonial thing, to, <laughs> super super white labeled for the for what's actually just learning, you know, with an elder. Um, and he sat in, and I knew that he was respected because um, he was kind of introduced that way by my professors and stuff. And I knew he was a PhD. Uh, yeah, he had his, his doctorate and everything. Um, but, you know, in appearance, he came in, I mean, just wearing whatever normal clothes. He's an indigenous guy, you know, and he had the accent, right? And so for linguists, uh, so much is encoded in the accent and uh, the word usage and everything, the manner in which you, s- you speak and the, the, reg- the sociolinguistic register you're using and everything uh, informs people kind of subconsciously about who that person is. But as for linguists, it's kind of, I think, probably even more amplified, right? Because we're, we're a little bit more attuned or like consciously attuned to, to wanting to know about those sorts of things right and this fellow had he had the indigenous accent which is uh has to do with tongue resting position which is the idea that the tongue is in a place when you're not speaking or returns to a certain place when you're not speaking uh some kind of neutral place and so in english it's low and forward relatively and in uh, a lot of our indigenous languages it it happens to be higher up and higher back and so when you move your tongue that way then you start to speak like this so your last podcast ray he had it right yeah that was great you know there's also uh, an idiosyncratic thing where speech is slower which is not lack of intelligence it's kind of the opposite it's like thoughtfulness right (laughs) Uh, but it can be misconstrued that way right Anyway, he had the, the guy sitting in on our, the, the, the doctor, right, sitting in on our session, indigenous fellow, was, you know, just having fun in the session, learning the language. He obviously knew quite a bit more than uh, our little undergrad students and things. And just having fun, being, being very informal with our teacher and things and, and laughing and telling jokes and things like that. And then, and so that was kind of my introduction to this guy, right? And, and so all of my biases subconsciously had been built up then, yeah. And so then after the session was over, we stepped outside and he kind of caught up to me and he's like, Hey, Jonathan, I want to ask you something about Quaquila. Have you noticed that uh, there's final obstruent devoicing in Quaquila? 
I've just been obsessed about that question. Hey, what do you think about that? And I was just floored because I had never noticed before, I'd never realized that I had never heard that accent be so articulate in in a scholastic setting, especially one that I was really striving to, to be knowledgeable in, right? And what really uh, shocked me was that I, was the fact that I, that I was shocked, you know, I was, I wasn't prepared for that level of intelligence, even though I knew, you know, that he was a doctor, you know, he was a doctor of linguistics. He should know this, of course, right? But also I was shocked that I didn't pick up on that particular linguistic trait because I should have, because, um, my first language, German has the same thing. I should have even picked up on that. So from so many different angles, I was just kind of floored by this. And in the moment, I was just like, oh, oh really? Uh, <laughs> didn't have much, <laughs> didn't, didn't come out as very smart, right? <laughs> um, but that gave me this kind of, he, he just put his finger on a big blind spot that I had um, based on the assumptions subconsciously that I'd made about him, right? even though I knew he was a doctor and I knew he was good at the language and knew also knew Squamish and, and, and other and fluent in Spanish as well. Um, that, that, that this image, this, this person with that face, you know, and that, that kind of language with that accent and stuff was just, was allowed to be so intelligent in any way, right? In every way in a scholastic way that, that I hadn't been exposed to before. And I just, I, I was really uncomfortable with myself with that little, with that racist blind spot, which was there, right? And the big takeaway that I want people that, why I want to share this story is that when that happens, when that happened to me, it's not a signal that finally the one blind spot that you found is finally scrubbed and now you're you're clean and you go on with your super not racist ways right it's that if there is one there may be others re is a podcast brought to you by new heights church a church located in mission bc focused on being church with mission in mind we are your hosts, Jessica Stefik and Greg Elford, and this is the Read Podcast, the prefix that hopes for more than we had before. I'd encourage people to be okay with that discomfort, <laughs> be okay with that unknowing. Today we press in for a second time to think about truth and reconciliation. After listening to Ray Aldred and processing as a community, today we turn to our own community to listen to how people we know and recognize are engaging with this topic. This episode reaches into three different angles on the topic. We start off talking with Jana Jansen about lessons she learned and ways she's thinking after her multiple experiences working with leaders and communities of different First Nations. Second, Greg sits with Marie Winston, our friend who grew up in a remote and rural coastal First Nation community in the middle of the 20th century. 
Her stories paint a picture of a different way of life and a unique version of the Indigenous experience in Canada. Lastly, we explore lessons in language with John Jansen, the voice that started the episode. John unpacks how speaking a different language in many ways adjusts the way we see the world. The Re podcast acknowledges that we gather, live, play, and worship on the traditional, ancestral, and unceded territory of the Stolo First Nation. So today we have the privilege of being with our friends John and Jana Jansen in their beautiful home. Uh, there's a fire uh, crackling beside me, and like some cats are laid out on the floor. Uh, it's a very comfortable place to be. But as we talk about Indigenous issues, uh, John and Jana so helpfully are opening up topics from their experience that make us feel a bit uncomfortable, but probably in a good way. Well, welcome, Jana. We are really uh, thankful that you're here with us. Um, I just want to start out by asking you how you would introduce yourself. I'd love to hear about uh, you, what you do, what you find meaning in. This last weekend, we celebrate All Saints Day. And as part of that, like, I realized that knowing who you are and where you come from is a form of wealth. Not everyone has that, right? Some people are cut off from their history and they don't know who their ancestors are. But I'm very fortunate that I do. I just found out that my 10th great grandfather is uh, the Baron of Baltimore. And he founded the uh, colony of Avalon in Newfoundland. And uh, then also Chesapeake Bay, Maryland, like he founded Maryland. So crazy stuff back in like the 1500s. <laughs> so yes, I'm very, very lucky in that I know who I am and I know where I come from. And so I have ancestry from Sweden, uh, from Ireland, apparently from England. I just found that out. Um, a full-on colonizer. <laughs> um, other sides of my family are uh, Ukrainian Mennonite and Jewish, which is also a new revelation that my Oma just uh, figured out or acknowledged or opened up about. So yeah, I have an interesting history of people in my line who have been running away from conflict, running away from religious oppression. And so I can't actually point to one place like Indigenous people can and say that my ancestors are from here and have been for thousands of years. So in terms of what I do and all of that, um, I, yeah, have had a bit of a roundabout history of my work. Um, I used to um, manage a green tech startup. And so that's kind of, that was my gateway eventually into working with Indigenous communities. Um, at the green tech startup, I was helping forge international partnerships and um, get, you know, seed grants and uh venture capital to grow um, some technology that could read energy load and break that up so that individuals would know exactly how much energy each of their appliances and light bulbs and energy systems in their homes were using. So that was really educational, really um, interesting, but after a while, um, it was just very, very intense and started lending itself more to um, big data mining of individuals, which I ethically was not okay with. So I left that. And uh, then um, that opened the door for me to um, reach out to an organization called Community Power and start working with them um, 
doing energy planning for First Nations. So I was doing energy planning and uh, resilience planning for First Nations for the last three to four years. But recently, I just started working again with an old client of mine called Kanak Bar Indian Band. And uh, they are, they've always been a, one of the most inspirational communities that I've, I've encountered in uh, that they're working towards self-sufficiency. And so I am specifically helping them um, with their food planning so that they can produce all of their own food in light of the threats with climate change to their cultural food systems and uh, the potential disruptions that we've seen with COVID and, and potential other dis, um, disasters or disruptions to their food systems. So coming from the very corporate um, startup kind of environment that I used to be a part of, um, it, it was so refreshing to start working with Indigenous communities because it actually helps me be more human, be more relational. Um, in my prior work, every single interaction was a transaction. If you didn't impress people in 30 seconds with your elevator pitch or your fancy infographics, you lost them, right? And that's all it was about. It was all about information and, uh, yeah, getting the right outputs from that interaction, which was exhausting and very inhuman. And so, yeah, like some of my first conversations with Indigenous leaders were just a breath of fresh air because... Yeah, it reminded me to take a step back and enjoy relating to a human being on that level. And um, I, I much more naturally, uh, I, I guess I just, I was more myself in that situation because I, it didn't matter whether or not we actually ended up doing business. I enjoyed them. They enjoyed me. I learned from them. They learned from me. It, it was a more of a peer relationship and again not that transaction um, beyond that I, I've been able to learn a lot I've been very very fortunate in that I've had access to nation leaders multiple nation leaders over a course of years um, where we've had a relationship and so I, I would say I'm I'm very apt and very skilled listener and so it's been a pleasure for me just to um, sit down with these leaders and listen to their perspective, listen to what's important to them. And that's been a big tool in my work because I've been able to reflect that back to funding agencies or whoever it applies to. So as we look at how to be people in our church, in our community that value reconciliation and want to learn ways to connect with folks that are Indigenous that are meaningful and not patronizing, it sounds like in the same way that you, it sounds like you almost are a liaison after being a listener. That's one of the reasons we wanted to talk to you to get your perspective on how um, our community can enter into roles of advocacy or even just building stronger relational ties with our Indigenous community. And I'd love to know some of the practical ways that you're I guess for lack of a better word, sort of living out a reconciliatory attitude. Um, is that a fair way to even talk about it? Yeah, ways that we can be agents of reconciliation. I mean, seek relationship, but don't demand it. Um, this, this would be a, a, I think it's a good point, right? Like a lot of Indigenous leaders are so busy. They're wearing five different hats. I'm sorry, my kitten just... <laughs> <laughs> destroyed my book um 
but yeah, like they, there's a lot on their shoulders. And so to place on their shoulders your own education of indigenous culture or history is a burden that needs to be invited and not demanded, right? But with that, like there, there are a lot of people who are um, elevating their voices on social media and, and in different forums like that or um, that, that you can just follow, right? You can follow and expose yourself to these different um, advocates, these different teachers, and um, hear that different voice, hear that perspective, educate yourself, put the onus on you to do the legwork to get yourself up to speed in, in your knowledge. But then, yeah, just just uh, at least start on a base level with that kind of relationship through social media. Um, there's also probably a lot of opportunities if you seek them out locally to, um, like there's classes at local um, friendship centers on medicinal plants or, you know, handicrafts that like they're open to everyone coming. It's, it's really not that big a deal, but th- that can just open a door. So I'm sort of curious about your unique role as you enter, say, a community where you don't know the elders or maybe you you know a couple of the people. Is there um, a posture that you're conscious of taking that has created inroads in relationship that you somehow could kind of turn inside out and help us understand some of the things that maybe are innate for you that you've just learned to be? Um, I think it, it'd be really helpful to learn from that experience if you think you can articulate what, what that's like. Sure, yeah. Um, yeah, I've, I've seen entrance into First Nations communities done very poorly and also very well. <laughs> um, yeah, th- there's a lot of pieces to that, I guess. But um, a major one is know who, who you are. Um, I've seen consultants go in and, and be blind to their own culture, blind to their own biases, and and not um, then open the door to an equal relationship. Uh, they're trying to compensate for a terrible past. I understand that, but it's not a very um, yeah healthy place to start a relationship. So in contrast, um, I've learned actually a lot from my husband, John, that you are in a better position to celebrate who someone else is if you know who you are. So often, one of the first questions I get asked when I enter an Indigenous community and talk to leaders is, who are you? Where are you from? Right? And so I share, I'm, I'm Mennonite. You know, this is what Mennonites believe. We believe in nonviolence. We believe in, you know, supporting a community. This is some of the things I stand for. And then that opens a dialogue of understanding where I get to learn about them and their history and their values. So, yeah, don't, don't think that you come in with a blank slate because you don't. How would you help someone um, wrap their head around um the best way to approach a community instead of uh, trying to overcompensate as you were describing? Well, I think you you have to do a lot of groundwork yourself first, right? Like it's a journey and and you're not going to arrive at the right answer right away or maybe ever. Um, And that's fine. Just like humility is key. So I've had to, you know, do research into my own heritage and my own history and question those things and recognize what was good, what was not. and, and face those things and seek out um, my own reconciliation journey because of that. I love that you coined the, t- the phrase, or maybe this is something that is out there, but your reconciliation journey. And that's kind of a subjective thing, like that we all could say, what is my reconciliation journey? What are some of the things that I personally can do? 
And you've mentioned a couple around like following uh, leaders on Instagram or other social media channels. Are there other things that you would point people to that might be broad strokes that would be part of a healthy response in a reconciliation journey, to use that phrase? Well, like I think ground zero is there's a ton of online resources on the history. That's a place to start, but there's a lot of good summaries out there of just what has happened. What have the what is the relationship between Canada, the Crown, Indigenous peoples been? Um, pay more attention to your locality. There's a good app called the Indigenous Peoples Atlas of Canada where you can look up exactly where you live and whose territory you're on. And that's a good place for you to start looking into those people's histories and um, and then potentially reach out if you feel so led and if there's an appropriate way to do that so that you can have more personal relationship. Um, I've known some people on their own reconciliation journey that have taken it as far as to will land back to the nations that whose land they're on, right? Because this land, especially in British Columbia, until some of the modern treaties came to be like, we, we've been living in a lot of areas without treaty. And so we're just occupying someone else's land without any um, permission from those people to be here or use those resources. So, uh, yeah, some of the questions I ask, ask myself now on a deep level is, if, is it evil for me to own land here, right? Am I supporting an oppressive system just by being a landowner? Do you have an answer to that question? I I mean, I, I'm... I'm f- I don't know. I don't know. That That's one of the questions that I'm wrestling with these days. Kind of touching on your experiences working with different Indigenous communities as a Christian, how like has that, that worldview or that kind of exposure to new ways of seeing the world, how has that like aided your spirituality or your relationship with Jesus? What has that looked like for you? Well, I, I have the benefit of the perspective that Jesus has been with all peoples since the dawn of time. And so I'm in love with the mystery of God and in love with his people. And I, whenever I encounter a different culture, be that indigenous culture or whoever, um, I am looking for how Jesus has spoken to them in a unique way and what I can learn about the peace of him that he's revealed to them and not to me. And so in that way, I'm richer for having come into contact with these cultures, right? And, and these different ways of knowing him. And so, yeah, like I, I kind of just sit in that space and, and I definitely often get a different f- spiritual feeling when I enter a new territory. And I take that as confirmation of just, a, again, a different piece of God or a different way he's expressed himself in this place. And I think it's really, really important for us to pay attention to those things and be sensitive to that because it brings us closer to the wholeness of who he is. Have you ever been in a um, in a setting where you're having to discern whether this is a cultural, like an appropriate cultural Jesus-following sort of spirituality that's like, yes, I can learn from this. This is jiving with where my spirit is connecting with God's spirit. Or, and, and have you ever experienced it on the other side where it's like, ah, oh, there's something that in this culture's um, emphasis of this seems unhealthy or whatever. So I know that's hard to speak for people, but I'm curious about your personal experience. Yeah, yeah. Well, like 
Well, first off, I'd encourage people to be okay with that discomfort, <laughs> be okay with that unknowing. Sometimes I, I, I think uh, it, it is a good thing to wrestle with hidden truths and seek them out. Um, you don't need to have a clear-cut answer all the time, right? Uh, there's that verse, uh, it is the glory of God to hide a matter and the glory of kings to seek it out, right? So we're meant to be seekers and we're meant to seek out Jesus wherever we are. I've definitely, um, yeah, been present for certain ceremonies in multiple cultures where I've I've felt a, a bit of an unease, but like I've, I've learned to sit with that and ask Jesus, where are you in this situation and what do you feel about this? And I've learned so much just through that conversation. So yeah, I, I would tell people don't don't walk in fear. Like, there's no point in that. Like, we we have security in um, who Jesus is, who we know God to be, and He is definitely present with everybody. Thanks. That's I, I love the way that you paint that picture, and it gives some freedom to say not everything has to be cut and dry and figured out. And that really is the scope of this podcast: is moving beyond just initial constructions of how we think about things to like a healthy deconstruction where we realize some of maybe our naivety and then a reconstruction that's that's um, learning from people that maybe have more experience or deeper insight. And so I wonder if what you just said might be, uh, might be just that for a few of us. Thanks, Jenna. Imagine for a moment what it would be like to grow up in a place where you know everyone in the village, have next to no access to technology, rely on seasonal harvesting opportunities in the surrounding regions, and traveled long distance by boat to find services that are found in most Canadian towns. Marie Winston's story is an invitation into celebrating the beauty of a small nation and the grief for what was lost for similar nations that didn't have the same fate. As a prelude, Marie's daughter Allison reminds us that despite the purity of Marie's story, it sadly is in contrast to many others. Hi, I'm Allison. I'm Gordon Marie's daughter and just wanted to have been having the, the benefit of sitting through and hearing my mom um, give her her story on um, what her life was like growing up as a First Nations woman here in BC. Just wanted to provide a little bit of context as well is that um, I, I, there's a lot that has um, been talked about about the impacts of colonialism um, and the impact of the Indian Act and how um, it has had different impacts on different people. And there's a lot of different things under the Indian Act that have been very, very negative over the years. But I think that what I've seen of my mom and her family is that growing up where she did in Hartley Bay, because it was so rural and so remote, a lot of those negative impacts might not have happened to her and her family in the way that it has for others. So um, I think that she's seen a different life as a result of that in comparison to others who have realized more negative impacts of uh, the uh, residential school and the Indian Act. My time with Marie was rich and we talked about many experiences. I've pieced things together from our conversation but was unable to draw out one detail from what we recorded. Marie mentioned that her first exposure to non-Indigenous people 
was with a Methodist missionary from England who had a wonderful impact on her, on her home, and on her village. The following is an edited version of our conversation together. My name is Marie, and I was uh, born and raised in Hartley Bay, which is about 80 miles south of Prince Rupert, about 40 miles north of the south of Kidmat River. And if you remember, a few years back, the ferry went down uh, the Queen of the North. Well, that was my family that rescued that vessel. So you grew up in a place where there were no cars, there were no planes. Um, were there sidewalks? Like, help us, can you draw us kind of a mental picture of what it would be like to move around? How many people are we talking? Are you next to the water? Like, how, how, were, how was that? What did that look like? Okay. Uh, our place was all boggy land, so there were no roads, but we had boardwalks from one end of the village to the other. There were 400 relatives now, pretty well all relatives. And uh, imagine that, no running water. We used to uh, carry water from the old powerhouse, which was... Uh, which only ran from 4 till 11 or till midnight. We had the outhouses in those days. We had a two-seater one. <laughs> like I say, when we, when we cleaned house, we cleaned from the, ups, the attic right out to the outhouse, and that's what we did. And they didn't have uh, wells or anything like that. Yeah. There were no services at all. You could only get into Hartley Bay by boat. Each family... Uh, more or less eight on their own, but the, we had times when if my dad would go out uh, uh, hunting and got deer maybe, or uh, a seal, well, mom would cook that, and for the older generation, like my grandmother's generation, she would have them come into our house, and we would have a table from our living room right, right into the dining room. Um, so talk to me a little bit about what, um, what your first experiences with non-Indigenous uh, people were like. We had, uh, we had teachers from out of town. Uh, we also had um, probably church members uh, from out of town um, that were teaching, like a Mr. Friesen. I remember Mr. Friesen, uh, so Mennonite. <laughs> So he taught, and uh, no, none of the uh, none of the uh, village people taught. But they all. But the only thing was, they did teach Sunday school. And was that generally in your community something that was a positive experience, or was that sort of a, a negative experience? I think it was a positive because uh, <laughs> we had church every Sunday. We had seven, uh, eleven o'clock in the morning. 2 o'clock for Sunday school, and 7 o'clock for evening service, and that was a given. Okay. So um, you, you called the school uh, by a particular name when we were talking. What was, what was the school structure at that time? Indian Day School. Okay. Tell me about Indian Day School. It was, uh, imagine, like a regular, but teachers, uh, I was also very shy, hard to believe, in school, and uh, we had uh, one, two, eight. Uh, there were two rooms, one, two, three. 
uh, in one classroom and then from four to eight in our classroom. But we had a small little school before they had built this uh, structure. I would run to school with my spoon because they served malt with the, uh, to the children. I didn't know, but I loved the taste of it. So I would run to school and my cousins would say, sorry, you go home, you're not allowed, you know? So I would go home with my head hanging and my spoon empty. <laughs> Okay, so it, there was sort of a formal aspect of education where the Indian Day School, well, how did you learn things in your community? Were you kind of brought along with what the adults were doing? And like, what, how do you think culture was passed to you if you look back now as an adult? What are some of the things that were kind of part of your culture that just naturally became your own? Yeah. You see, we didn't have what you would call an Indian culture so, uh, uh, as we know it today. Um, the only thing that I can remember my grandmother doing uh, when she wanted to have a feast, uh, I can remember her with her, with her uh, cane, a, a big tall cane, I guess a stick you would call it, and she would do, do like this on the boardwalk and she would sing. You know, dem wo haitne, dem wo haitne. That means I am going to have a, a feast. And she was inviting the people to come to her feast. That's the only cultural thing that I can remember because we, we didn't do any, we didn't have any uh, clothing, uh, cultural clothing. Right. And it's interesting because when we're so entrenched in our culture, we don't even realize that it's culture. It's just like the air we breathe. Um, when we were chatting earlier, you were talking about the har the seasons of harvesting. Yes. Do you remember um, moving through different seasons and um, being kind of brought along as a little one to help with different aspects of that? The only time would be in May, and that was uh, seaweed time so that was the month of may that they would do that and we would move from hartley bay to uh um kiel it's called by ashdown island so by and large the men were involved in the harvesting of yes things. yes and what was the women's role they were the ones that processed okay. uh, the uh, the uh, catch or whatever at the time. The different seasons. Yes. So um, to be female meant that you were likely more often in in the home. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Um, tell me a little bit about the transition that happened when uh, you hit grade eight and the Indian Day School, um, you aged out at grade eight. Yes. Were there options available to you at that point or where where did you end up going from there? I went to Prince Rupert because that was the only thing that we could do at the time because my grandfather wouldn't allow the Indian agent to take the children away from home, from Hartley Bay, because he didn't see any point in that at that time because he felt that, you know, we've, we're, we've got parents here. Why couldn't we teach the children, you know? So there was, there was some pressure that your grandfather um, resisted to have kids leave the village. Yeah and be taken to like a residential school is that yes okay 
and uh, that wasn't possible for us. So we, we went to high school and lived with a family. Uh, we rented uh, space from a room and board from a family in, in Prince Rupert and went to high school. And when you think back on, the, on this, and this I recognize is a bit of a tender topic, but how, what, what crosses your mind when you think about the stance that your grandfather took at that point? Do you see that as um, one of the more important things that kept the family uh, whole? And from maybe experiencing some of the things that we've heard have been oh, horrific. That would have been horrific. So just generally speaking, when you look back on what it was like to grow up, uh, what many people would call completely off the grid, um, do you think that was, a generally speaking, a positive experience? Or was it something you wished that you could have a different experience when you were a kid? Like, were you longing for more contact or were you, were as a child, did, were you aware of um, how special what you were experiencing was? I am very thankful for, for my upbringing. I didn't know any different. Marie, how many people live in, uh, are you, do you call it a village or how, how many people live in that village? Oh gosh, we're lucky if we have uh, 80 there's mostly 50 people around. And what is the language that's part of your culture? What is it called? Jimsian. So what were people's reaction when you uh, came back to Hartley Bay and you uh, decided that you're going to marry this white man named Gord Winston? What was the reaction of the village? Oh, everybody knew who he was. He's, he's Kamsiwa. What does that mean? That's a white person. Okay. <laughs> And so was it, was he received with open arms, or was he was this a strange decision, or how did that go for you? Oh, I think he was welcome with open arms. We had we had our wedding in Prince Rupert, and we had our party there. So everybody and their dog. When you uh, look back over um, all the experiences you have, how do you think about your childhood and your upbringing? How would you describe it as as kind of? Um, a part of your overall life. Like, do you have words that you use to, to describe that? I think, let's say it's been a wonderful life right from the start. I wouldn't trade my upbringing for anything. And being married to him, well... You don't want to hear one word of that. Like, <laughs> 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 <Can you believe? laughs> <laughs> no, it's been awesome. Yeah, I have no regrets. Well, Marie, I so appreciate the uh, time that you've taken to let me ask questions about what it was like to grow up in the way that you did. You're welcome. And so appreciate you telling stories and uh, the way that you have explained how life has gone. Thanks for inviting me into your story. It's been a slice. <laughs> for our final segment, we turn to John Jansen to explore lessons in language. John has the unique angle of having learned an indigenous language from an elder over the course of 10 years of relationship. At the end of our discussion, with her permission, you will hear John's teacher, Ruby Dawson Kramer, say the Lord's Prayer in her first language. But for now, John, you're a linguist. 
Can you explain what linguistics is or what a linguist does? Yeah, sure. Well, linguistics is just basically the study of language, right? So superficially, that seems pretty simple. But once you start opening up what language is and how it behaves and what it isn't and things like that, you get to you come up pretty quickly into some extreme complexity, right? And this really complicated somewhat illogical code that we use to communicate. Now, I know just from knowing you that you speak uh, several different languages and have like a, a functional sort of expertise in languages even beyond what you can speak. But the one I'm particularly interested in is the indigenous language that you've spent a lot of time learning. Can you tell us what it's called, um, what nation it represents, where that's located? Can you give us kind of the, the debrief on that? Sure, yeah. I've spent the last 10 or 11 years studying uh, a local language to, to the BC coast called Kwakwala. It was also uh, re referred to as Kwagyudal or Kwagyuth by uh, some of the early scholars, uh, kind of newcomer scholars in uh, the 1900s, early 1900s. Uh, so that's spoken uh, f on the n more northern and east coast regions of Vancouver Island and then across on the adjacent mainland. So John, I'd love to hear more about why you chose to study that language, um, who taught you, and I guess what you learned besides the actual speaking of the language. Yeah, sure. I started studying it at uh, UBC in my undergrad, but my first exposure to Kwakwala was when I was growing up in Port Hardy. And my dad was uh, teaching at the on-reserve school at the Guatzalanahuachtauch school. And he was teaching a variety of grades. It kind of ended up in six and seven. And so he brought home a, a little bit of lingo that he'd know um, just from being immersed in the community and stuff and being given a name during a, a potlatch naming ceremony and things. So I was just kind of exposed at a really early age to the culture that way and, and the language specifically. Um, but then at the, in my undergrad at UBC, then I started to study it a little bit more in, in, you know, intensively or intentionally. And, uh, after graduating with the undergrad there, um, the teacher who was teaching our, our field methods course in that language was willing to continue to teach a small group of us from her home in Vancouver. And so there was a, a small group of six or so of us that, uh, that continued on with her. And I was the only one who stayed for the next decade. So the other ones dropped off or got their masters or went back home to Japan or something. Right. And I was local. I think it was the only one who was local anyway. And I, so I stayed and I kept going, uh, roughly once a week for the next 10 years, um, trying to learn this language and, and everything else that came with meeting with her in her home and uh, yeah, building that relationship there. So John, what would you say we can learn from languages? What do languages say about a worldview or a way of seeing life? Yeah, my Oma used to say that you learning, a, a, learning another language is like having a new world open to you. She, you know, growing up in the Ukraine, she spoke Russian, Plotich, and High German. And then she learned a little bit of Spanish from Paraguay and then English fluently as well. And she noticed and was trying to impress upon me that every language not only has its community, but its, its way of perceiving 
the world. And so you can kind of rediscover the things that are around you just by learning a new language, you know. And I think, <clears throat> like, it's, it might be a little bit contentious or, or uh, debatable uh, what it does cognitively to learn a new language. But for me personally, in my experience, if I'm completely immersed in a language I speak fluently, in, in a, especially in a community of other speakers, I notice my thought patterns changing and my behavior and mood is altered by that language as well. And so it's not as though I have a different personality, but different aspects of my personality are kind of triggered in different ways, depending on the language um, that I'm expressing my my base thoughts through, right? It, it has this feedback, you know? Uh, and none of that's negative. It's just, it's just a, a completely different way of relating, you know, to in, in community and, and with the world. So what are some examples of things that you've learned through another language? In terms of personality, I, I've noticed that when I'm speaking in German, I can be more irritable or I'm a little bit more interested in how things should be done and strong lines and clean surfaces and things, right? And there's a lot of words in German that kind of reinforce that, you know? Uh, and when I speak French, I, I find myself to be more excitable. This is all like relative to something, right? But like just more excitable and be able to just drop an issue immediately, just like take it up and drop it right away and just move on, you know? Be a little bit more passionate maybe. Yeah, and Russian might be more moody. I don't know. Like, <laughs> you know, you you can you can tread pretty easily on a bunch of stereotypes. But in in myself, especially with those two languages, I speak very well, German and French. Like, I do notice that in myself, you know. And so it's it's kind of a it might it might be some kind of a a personal rediscovery to learn a a language fluently as well. You know, what would you say is something that you've learned um, in kind of immersing yourself in the I'm going to try really hard here. Kwakla language? <laughs> well, there's so much culture, right? You you cannot separate language from culture. Cult, um, language being the the vehicle that culture travels in, right? Um, which is why the, the government tried to get rid of language so, so strongly. That was such a big emphasis in the residential schools, right? Because they knew they would break cultural transmission by breaking the language, right? which is something we're desperate to, to reverse or to, to try to get back right now, right? Um, so learning in learning Kwakwala, you learn about a worldview and about a culture just in, just in the way the, the language functions. One, one obvious example there from Kwakwala and Wakashan languages generally is that every noun is encoded with uh, what we call a visibility marker. And so we would just say the chair, which tells you only about number. There's, there's one specific chair, right? Instead of a chair, right? So there's a little bit of that. And then we have uh, what, what are called dykes, dyktic expressions. So you can say this and that chair, which tells you a little bit about position, right? This would be closer and that would be farther away, right? Kwakwala has uh, a dyktic system that conflates the a uh, with this and that over three levels of distance. So like on me or near me or far away. And then again, a fourth level is not visible. 
Um, and those are all encoded over case. And so there's a complete, a, a very robust visibility system. So that, so the effect of that is when you're telling a story or hearing a story, a good storyteller is able to be extremely vivid, right? Very quickly. So you're able to disseminate this, this, this information about the chair not being seen or suddenly disappearing or something immediately without having to say it in a sentence. Usually it's one word and you know where it is and things like that. Right. And so just the, the, the vividness of that language and, and, and other languages like that, um, is completely encoded in the lang in, in the, the functioning of, of that language and affects the worldview that way. Right? Hear John's teacher, Ruby Dawson Kramer, say the Lord's prayer in her first language. Amen. Thank you for listening and a special thanks to each of our guests for bringing their personal reflections and stories to the RE podcast. A thank you to our silent sponsor and our very supportive church community, New Heights. And of course, young Obi Alford for putting together the music that backs our voices. Join us again in two weeks when the RE podcast is back, but this time with reflections on the value of simplicity with our guest, Father Leo, from Mission's own Westminster Abbey. This has been episode three of the Re Podcast, the prefix that hopes for more than we had before. <laughs>